We've still got people coming in, but it is uh, 6.30. We have exactly an hour and a half, and there is a lot to go through. Um, I'm delighted to have been asked to come in and chair this meeting. We have four exceptional speakers uh, launching a book which I believe has been in the gestation for at least five years. Um, a time in which the appreciation of the role of business in Gulf and the wider Middle East has been uh, both evolving in the spotlight and, and of course entered a revolutionary phase. So um, the book is here. One of the things that uh, certainly I've been asked to say is that uh, the uh, publishers are more than available to sell you copies. So if you charge down here um, after the, uh, the conference has happened, um, there are books um, available for sale. Um, we have four speakers. Um, they have promised to uh, speak with, uh, with speed and alacrity. Um, and then we'll have some questions and answers and go as quickly as possible. We must finish by 8 o'clock. Um, I'm not going to say any more, actually. I'm going to pass immediately over... I think we start with Stefan, yes? Yep. Okay. So we start with Dr. Stefan Hertog of LSE, who you all know. Um, please. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, John. Um, what uh, I'll do tonight is very briefly give you an idea of the, the general content of the book, some of the main arguments in it, which I've also tried to... Uh, summarize it in the introductory chapter, uh, and then I'll make a, a few very, very brief remarks uh, as to uh, the, the current political outlook of the private sector after the Arab uprisings. Uh, and I'll try to keep the whole thing to 10 minutes, and if I don't, then John, please be a, a stern task. I'll be draconian. Yeah, the, uh, because I, I think we'll have a lot of material to go through, and there'll be a lot of, um, there'll be a lot of things to talk about in the, in the Q&A. Um, so the original motivation when we started that book project uh, quite a while ago, I think in uh, 2007 it was, uh, was to uh, look at the politics of business from more of a business perspective, uh, so less of a state-driven perspective as had typically been the case in the investigation of Middle East political economies, uh, because there had been a lot of literature on the retreat of the state, uh, on neoliberalism, on, on corruption, and all those things that happened after the infitah, the, the economic opening in a variety of Middle Eastern countries. But the whole thing was still pretty much driven by questions about regime stability, uh, by questions about the nature of authoritarian rule. And because there had been a burgeoning and very interesting literature about state-business relations, also from a business perspective, that had emerged in, in other regions uh, of the world, notably Southeast Asia and Latin America, I thought it, it would be time at a time when business had become more important uh, politically uh, as a provider of employment, a provider of public service, to look at state business relations more from a business perspective in the Middle East region. Um, and um, we did not look primarily at business from the kind of crony capitalist perspective of business as part of a, a new, improved authoritarianism, which was kind of the argument that was en vogue in the last few years before 2011, which actually did serve us very well, because it turned out that that new kind of crony capitalism was actually very frail and faltered very quickly. And really, the, the first uh, collateral victims of regime change, even before uh, the presidents left uh, Egypt, Yemen, 
uh, and before there was uh, a mass-scale insurgency in, in Syria were actually the business cronies of the regime, which uh, I think from hindsight is quite an interesting phenomenon and something that I think some of the material in the book will be useful to uh, illuminate and, and to understand. So something that had been happening all across uh, the region, but specifically in the republics that had a stronger kind of state socialist legacy uh, ever since the 1970s, accelerated since the 1980s, was um, a reduction in the size of the state, a reduction in state employment, uh, a growing contribution of business to capital formation. Uh, there was downsizing of employment in the state-owned enterprise sector in particular in Egypt. You uh, went from 1.3 million workers in state-owned companies in 1991 to 400,000 workers in the mid-2000s, so uh, very, quite radical downsizing. And perhaps, John, if you could switch to the other presentation, uh, which has just got a, a couple of statistics. So you just have to go out of that and click on the other presentation. Right. Um, um, sorry, I should have... You've got to go to the bottom. Yep. Uh, Hang on. We've got to have someone who's going to be more yeah. technically competent than myself. <laughs> sorry, I have entirely my... Yeah. Oh, there we go. Great. If you could just go to the second slide on that. Uh, you can see that there's actually been a, a quite drastic downsizing of uh, the state in Middle East and North African economies here, uh, where they were uh, larger in the national economy uh, up to the mid to late 1970s than uh, the state in any other world region as measured by different income levels, and then actually declined to become uh, a fairly small player in relation to uh, the national economy as a whole. So quite drastical, uh, quite drastic uh, reshaping of the structures of those economies, which uh, has really gone underexplored until very re recently. Uh, even in you know, very uh, strongly socialist countries like Syria and Libya, you had increasingly private investments in uh, banking, telecoms, manufacturing, all kinds of strategic sectors that used to be state-controlled. Uh, the private business was increasingly involved in service delivery, in the utility sector, in education, in health, sometimes, uh, sometimes by stealth, sometimes uh, with official licenses. And in that sense, the republics gradually converged on structures that were already more pronounced than the monarchies, that had always been more pro-business, pro-capitalist, that always tolerated more of an indigenous traditional business class. And all across the world, even in cases like Syria, you had a pro-business rhetoric emerging, especially from the 1990s on. Uh, you had a convergence, at least formally, uh, on international capitalist standards regarding trade, uh, foreign direct investment, privatization, regulation, and so on and so forth. How well that was implemented in practice is a different question, but um, all countries, at least on the level of formal ret uh, regulation rhetoric, seem to converge on uh, a sort of quasi-Washington consensus uh, policy agenda. And perhaps we could quickly switch to the next slide. Uh, uh, yeah, that's actually a pretty confusing slide with the individual countries, which again just shows you that government consumption went down in most of them since the early 1980s. And if you switch one slide further, you see that the, the same has been the case also within uh, the GCC countries. Um, so against that background, <coughs> we try to answer the question, who are those businessmen uh, that, that have filled the, that new space, that, are, uh, that have come to provide those new services? What is their social background? What, is, what, if anything, is their contribution to development? What are their political positions? What are their connections? And how do they influence, if at all, economic policymaking? And the book contains case studies on Syria, the UAE, Oman, Bahrain, Iran, Egypt, Kuwait, uh, and uh, the remaining GCC countries, at least in, in the shape of a statistical survey. Um, and, of course, when we wrote it, we, we knew 
like uh, all others, uh, we, we knew little that the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprising would be upon us in early 2011. But actually, I think the research has proved all the more timely. And luckily, we were uh, able to revise some of the chapters against the light of what has happened in the last two years. Um, luckily, we didn't make this a project about authoritarian survival, as, as probably dozens of possibly hundreds of our colleagues in the field did. Uh, but instead, we looked at the capacity of business and the way they engage with the state uh, that I think will uh, provide a background that's even more important to understand the political economy of the region after the uprisings than it was before, at a, at a time now that the fiscal basis of governments is further diminished, the capacity of governments to deliver public services, to deliver employment is further diminished, and, and business will have to step into that breach, or is expected to step into that breach uh, even more forcefully, although there are, there are huge political tensions over how that's supposed to be transacted. Um, now, one of the main contributions, I guess, of the book is to explain why and how exactly the private sector has actually been weaker in many regards than some of those statistics would suggest. Uh, and if you jump to the, the last slide, um, the, the, yeah, um, we have two very crony, uh, two very famous crony capitalists, uh, Rami Mahlouf in uh, the, the, the top two pictures and Ahmed Is from Egypt in the bottom two pictures. And those were two of the most prominent, most visible early kind of sacrificial lambs when the going really got tough in the Arab countries, which is significant because a lot of people thought that uh, the, the, the new authoritarianism, the leaner, more capitalist authoritarianism in the Middle East was built around crony capitalist networks that really call the shots. But quite far from it, those guys were the first who were kicked out of the door uh, when uh, there was a real popular challenge to uh, the authoritarian systems in the region. And instead, uh, ruling elites coalesced around the security apparatus. If, if at all, they were able to hold out against popular challenges. And I think the fragility that that betrayed is something that is, that is uh, better understood against uh, a deeper historical background of how those players acquired the positions they had. Uh, and, uh, th that is something that uh, requires going back in history by, by arguably a few decades, which is what, what uh, most of the chapters in the book really do. Uh, even in Oman, where uh, business elites have been very, very close to the sultan. Uh, some of the sacrificial lambs after the uprising uh, were ministers from very big business families. So even in that system where, uh, in GCC comparisons, business elites have been the most deeply ensconced in the ruling elite. It was some of those guys who were sacrificed the most quickly. And um, why is it that they were seen as dispensable? Why were they seen as not having a broader popular constituency or a mobilizational power that could become useful in the event of, of uh, political uh, challenges is, is one of the main questions I think that uh, several of the chapters in the book try to answer. Uh, that there was even a sort of attempt to set up uh, new business elites as also political elites in the 1990s and the 2000s in a number of Middle Eastern countries when the old ruling parties uh, the old kind of corporatist uh, populist mechanisms had run out of steam, the unions weren't uh, credible anymore, the professional syndicates, the peasants' associations, and so on and so forth. They had been disemboweled, had lost their distributional, their mobilizational political function. There was sort of an attempt to install business elites, often crony elites, sometimes with very old family histories, sometimes very recent arrivals, as new political intermediaries. Suddenly, 
businessmen start appearing as members of parliament in Syria, which was unprecedented. Suddenly they colonized the top levels of the National Democratic Party in Egypt. Uh, and they were, I think, supposed to, to compensate for the loss of the popular uh, lower middle to middle class constituencies that those regimes were once built upon before the economic liberalization, the emergence of increasing inequalities. And the striking thing is that that attempt to set them up as new uh, ruling elites and also as new intermediaries to represent broader strata, you know, the businessman who manages to get everyone in his factory to you know, march to the polling booth and vote for the NDP uh, or, you know, uh, speak on behalf of the business quarter of which he is kind of the notable representative. Um, that really didn't work out. They, th those kind of business elites, they didn't uh, draw, they didn't put down the kind of social roots that were, that were expected of them. In many cases, they were not voted into office. Um, they, uh, they were, uh, by and large, unpopular, uh, also to the extent that there were attempts to uh, set up business-driven parties after the Arab uprisings. Those were largely marginalized. For example, uh, the, the um, party that was set up by Sawiris in Egypt got, uh, was one of the most popular businessmen and one of the most credible businessmen actually got a pretty small share of the vote, even smaller than the share of the, the Copts in the national population. So this attempt to set them up as new notables and uh, social elites really didn't work out very well, which is one of the uh, factors that I think explains why they were so quickly marginalized and didn't really play an independent role uh, during the uprisings. Uh, the business elites were also rolled out to set up a kind of facade civil society under the authoritarian regimes. They, they funded charities, they funded youth and employment projects, and all kinds of welfare projects, usually uh, with uh, a foreign audience as the, the main target, and often tied to the patronage networks of uh, the president, or more frequently, the president's wife, which again was, was an attempt to substitute for previous uh, corporatist interest groups that had been disemboweled in the republics that, that had lost its importance, the, the, the unions, the old populist parties, the professional syndicates, and so on and so forth. And again, that civil society really was, as mentioned, a facade. It was more for foreign consumption, and it did, didn't really have much impact in local society and didn't give most of those businessmen uh, social legitimacy. Um, so the fact that businessmen were so prominent in those liberalizing regimes, and yet had such a, a weak social resonance and such little support, I think, helps to explain the weak social basis of those regimes and why some of them were actually toppled so quickly uh, after they had lost large parts of the middle class constituency. Now, there's a difference in the, in the monarchies, uh, some of which I investigate in detail uh, in the book, where the businesses are also... Uh, business elites are also beleaguered politically, are not as le legitimate as they once used to be, but they still have more of a traditional social status as community leaders and notables. Uh, they're not quite badly seen as recent uh, arrivals and crony capitalists, if only because they're, they're, they've been around for a few generations. And I think that's one of the factors that has made uh, the monarchies a bit more socially stable because they've, they've uh, built a social coalition with a business class that's somewhat more embedded uh, in, in society at large, although that's a difference of degrees and, and a lot of uh, monarchical business elites have also gradually lost social status, if not political or business status, uh, over the last few decades. The, for example, there's um, a marginalization of business elites in parliamentary politics in Kuwait. Um, there have been attempts by the Kuwaiti regime, which are very nicely documented in one of the chapters by Rivka Azulay, um, 
to create new Shiite business elites as intermediaries, as representatives of the Shiite community, also to bring under control certain uh, radical political trends among the Shiites. That worked for a while, but then it disintegrated pretty quickly because those guys didn't really have that much popular legitimacy either. Um, so there are signs of limited collective capacity of businesses across the whole region. They, they've had a very reactive role in policymaking. Uh, they usually defend their economic privileges rather than coming up with any kind of proactive economic policy agenda, which is the case in other developing countries. If you look at business associations in places like Turkey, Tuzia, or business associations in Thailand and other South, Southeast Asian cases, there's quite a bit of collective lobbying and policy planning capacity that you don't really have anywhere in the Middle East. So although individually they might be sophisticated in the businesses they run collectively, actually quite badly organized and quite immature, they're organized in state corporatist bodies, chambers of commerce and businessmen associations that are closely controlled by the regime until recently. And there's still this low general trust between the uh, state and business. So my mobile phone starts to talk to me. Um, so um, even if the state needs their collective capacity, uh, they're not well organized. They're fragmented and they've been individually state dependent and thereby they could have they could be cut off quite easily in the cases where you did have, uh, where you did have a revolution. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that they didn't play a prominent role in the uprisings on either side of the fence, either as prominent supporters of the regime in most cases, because they were marginalized in the political game pretty early on, or as prominent supporters of the opposition. Uh, I think with the exception of Bahrain, where Sunni elites played a very important role in supporting the regime quite publicly, uh, they, they were pretty invisible. There were individual entrepreneurs supporting the opposition, but I think they did that uh, rather as members of the white-collar middle class who happened to be entrepreneurs rather than as representatives of any kind of collective uh, capitalist uh, agenda to, to topple the old regime or to, to negotiate with the old regime. And that's actually a striking contrast to political transitions in some other world regions. If you look at Latin America or East Asia, uh, at least in the advanced stage of a transition when the regime started to topple, business tended to come out forcefully uh, in an organized fashion, made a public statement, we want a transition, we want negotiations about a new constitution, and they did play a very important material role in supporting the opposition. None of that really happened anywhere in the Middle East, which I think is testament to the, to the collective weakness of, of the business class. Um, and I think I'll stop right here because I've done so. over time. Uh, and we can take up questions about um, what the business elites are doing after the revolution. Ideally, after Jackmo's talk, who's going to talk about that uh, much more eloquently than, than, than I would. Thank you. Th thank you very much, Stefan. Indeed, um, posing a lot of questions, uh, and particularly about the nature of, of the business elites over a long period. I think there's plenty to explore there. We're going to go on to Giacomo uh, Luciani. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I think uh, I have five key points that I wish to, to uh, underline, uh, partly already made by, by Stefan. Uh, the first point, which is to some extent surprising, is the fact that uh, the old regimes uh, uh, nurtured the class of crony capitalists, and that is not surprising, because that's what every regime does. Uh, and uh, you find this in every country all around the world. So. Uh, a lot has been said about the fact that this uh, business class was crony, but that's not so strange. What is strange is the fact that they were singularly uh, uh, inept at the, 
<laughs> at uh, being business uh, people. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't manage to uh, to uh, graduate into uh, serious business people, which is uh, different from what we see, for example, in the Gulf, uh, or certainly in many Asian countries, where cronyism has been all over the place uh, uh, equally. But a few, uh, a certain number of uh, business people, large and medium and small, have managed to uh, acquire a standing which makes them to some extent independent of their closeness to power. In contrast, the crony capitalists, uh, especially in North Africa and in the Levant, have not been able to uh, generate any serious growth, employment, or any of the things that uh, the government uh, expected from them. Second key point is that there has been, and for the time being, I don't see uh, yet any serious attempt to reintegrate uh, uh, the diaspora, the business diaspora, because there is a large number of business people, some, in some uh, cases old business families, uh, in some cases uh, more recent business families, who have uh, moved away from their countries of origin. In, in many cases, they've moved to the Gulf and they've made fortune in the Gulf. Okay, the, the paradigmatic example of this might be uh, Rafik Hariri and his uh, sons. Uh, uh, but uh, these people are not uh, in any sense uh, courted by uh, the government, the old regimes, nor the new regimes, and asked to come back, enticed uh, to, to come back uh, and invest and generate uh, growth and employment. Third point uh, is that uh, we have some uh, uh, business uh, characters who are close to the Islamic parties, especially to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, but these are not uh, terribly impressive as business people, okay? They obviously uh, command some, some resources, and those resources have been important in allowing uh, the survival of uh, the, their respective parties, notably, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood in, in, um, in uh, Egypt. Uh, but when you look at the details of uh, what they do and uh, how much uh, capital they have, what's their net worth and uh, in which kind of business they are involved, uh, they are um, not very impressive. So um, Harriet Al-Shatter, who uh, was the first uh, candidate for, for um, uh, the position of president in, in Egypt, uh, put forward by the Muslim Brotherhood, or uh, his close uh, buddy Hassan uh, Malek uh, who has since uh, tried to organize a business association an alternative business association called ABDA and people have, all, have immediately made that, the parallel with uh, Musiad in Turkey uh, neither of these people are uh, really uh, sufficiently powerful as business uh, characters able to uh, support the action and the policies of their respective government, assuming that those policies exist, because we haven't seen much in terms of uh, mobilizing business uh, from the new governments. Um, last uh, key point is that obviously you cannot expect much from uh, the really marginalized uh, so-called entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, there has been some polemic uh, because there's been an attempt on the part of some to 
uh, depict Boazizi as an entrepreneur, uh, in uh, which, in a sense, you know, he was because uh, he was uh, self-employed, how you want to uh, call it. Uh, but certainly, uh, the large number of uh, marginalized, self-employed, uh, very poor uh, entrepreneurs of this kind are not uh, capable of. Uh, uh, becoming the driving force uh, behind the revival uh, of their economies. And that's what is needed, what uh, the revolution needs in terms of uh, consolidating and, and succeeding uh, is to uh, be able to deliver the goodies to the people because the people, after all, uh, expect that. They expect a bit more, um, a bit improvement in, in, uh, in their standard of living, in expect employment, expect some opportunities. So uh, what comes out of all this is that uh, in terms of, in order to, to, to succeed uh, the Arab Spring or uh, the continuing Arab Revolution, I think we can speak of a, uh, an Arab Revolution, uh, um, needs to uh, reach a compromise with uh, the business sector, needs to uh, look after its uh, economic uh, uh, basis, foundations, and that is uh, something that um, I expect to some extent will uh, also force them to make peace with some of the crony capitalists, not all of them. Uh, certainly some of the most egregious cases uh, that uh, Stefan has mentioned uh, will not be uh, allowed to come back, but others uh, need to be. They need to look for uh, those entrepreneurs that are active outside of their respective countries and uh, they need to court international uh, capital, foreign investment, notably parallel foreign investment from the Gulf, okay, within, uh, uh, within the region. Uh, I don't see much of this uh, happening. There is a lot of uh, uh, attention being uh, devoted to uh, issues that are uh, not really important for the country. Uh, they are symbolic, but they, are no, they have no uh, immediate serious consequences for the well-being of the people, and uh, not enough uh, attention being uh, devoted to uh, delivering uh, the goodies, uh, delivering a, a bit of a better life to the vast majority of the people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're going over to uh, Mark Valeri, I think. From yeah. University of Exeter, Mark, please. Thank you. Um, I'll say one word about uh, my chapter, um, which is about uh, Bahrain and Oman. Um, I took these two cases, given their um, limited oil uh, and gas resources, compared to their neighbors. And given the fact that they have been, both countries have been viewed as um, kind of laboratories of reform policies implemented in the Gulf to address the challenges of post oil. Uh, social and economic sustainabilities. And my hypothesis was to understand the direction and the quality of the, the economic reforms implemented, quality without any normative uh, perception, but uh, so the quality and the, uh, the direction taken by the economic reforms from uh, considering the, the state business relation, so the, the relation between the business elite and the political elite. Um, in one country like Bahrain, uh, you have historically um, uh, a bourgeoisie or a political elite which is quite different than the, the economic elite. Both are quite distinct, uh, distinguishable. 
In Oman, on the contrary, since 1970, the bourgeoisie and the economic elite has always been very much involved in the decision-making uh, process. So there, are, there have been much more, uh, many more conflict of interest between political and economic elite uh, in the decision-making process in Oman than in Bahrain. And I wanted to understand the, the direction taken by these re economic reforms implemented in these two countries from this hypothesis. Um, and in Bahrain, uh, since, nine, uh, since uh, 2005, 2006, there has been a conflict, a uh, very strong conflict between the prime minister and the crown prince. Uh, the prime minister cons being considered as the old guard uh, and with uh, many people around the Chamber of Commerce supportive of the prime minister. Uh, and the old uh, merchant elite, and the crown prince trying to promote uh, technocratic uh, reforms from, uh, the, uh, from a new body called the Economic Development Board, which was implemented by, uh, by and uh, led by the crown prince in order to reform the labor market and to disrupt, uh, in a way, the, the balance of power uh, or the balance of the economic elite and to uh, promote Bahrainization of the labor market, which was very much fought by uh, the old merchants and the old economic elite consider, who, who considered that uh, this promotion of Bahrainization of the labor market could disrupt their own, uh, uh, their own um, uh, preeminence on the economy because it would push them uh, to... Uh, 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 hire more Bahrainis and then uh, less than, and, and less uh, foreign or uh, labors and uh, expatriates, and it could disrupt their uh, their margins and so. Uh, in Oman, the, uh, the the economic reforms implemented were different. Uh, in Oman, uh, there has been a very strong push from the the top, from the Sultan and from other actors uh, from the, the the early 2000s towards a strong homogenization of the labor market because uh, from the, the, the early 2000s, Oman has uh, experienced a lot of unemployment and poverty. Uh, but what is very interesting to notice is that uh, by 2005-2006, the merchant elite and uh, the economic elite, which was involved in the decision-making process, managed to, uh, to divert this homogenization policies and to... Uh, uh, this official cha or national challenge of harmonization and to promote their, uh, their what the old economic elite in Bahrain wanted to, that is less harmonization and more foreign investment, more uh, uh, private sector, uh, more uh, emphasis on the private sector and uh, in order to, uh, to have to employ as many expats as before and not to, and to cut the cost of the... So, harmonization process in Oman uh, has been reverted uh, around 2005-2006 because of the conflict of interest between the political and the economic elite. The fact that the economic elite were, uh, were uh, part of the decision-making process and they could stop the policy of harmonization in their favor uh, and uh, push the, the economic reforms into their, uh, the direction they wanted. Um, that's that's very interesting because it shows how uh, the different possibilities that the business actors and the business elite can have on the decision-making process. In one country like Bahrain, uh, the, the economic elite has to adapt to the balance of power within the ruling family. Uh, 
they cannot decide by themselves the economic policies or the economic reform or the direction taken by the economic reform. They have to adapt uh, to the balance of power between the, at the moment between the crown prince and the, and the prime minister. And they have to play, to, buy, to be much more vocal, uh, to lobby one actor or the other within the ruling family in order to promote their own uh, interest. In Oman, the situation is different because the economic elite is directly involved in the decision-making process. So they are in a capacity, and until now, even if some actors have been removed, as you mentioned, uh, have been fired after 2011, there are still a lot of economic actors in the decision-making process. And they can uh, directly uh, push the economic reforms or the decision-making process in the direction they want, or, uh, and they have much more, uh, I, I would say, leverage of power, leverage of power within the decision-making process than the economic elite in Bahrain. And in this perspective, uh, it's interesting to notice, uh, according to me, it's a decisive uh, element to understand the directions taken by the economic reforms uh, and the labor market policies, for instance, in both countries. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, finally, um, we welcome back to LSE, but Thank now much, um, Assistant Professor at Qatar University, um, Dr. Khalid uh, Al-Mazaini. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Um, I'm just continuing from the last point that uh, uh, Mark made in relation to the political and business elite uh, in Oman. Uh, I'll move to the case of the UAE. The UAE uh, is uh, more complicated and complex than the case of Oman. And uh, this is due to the fact that the UAE is a federal state. And within the UAE itself, um, uh, there are seven private sectors. <coughs> Each emirs has its own uh, uh, local law that is different from the federal law. Despite the fact that there, there is a chamber of commerce in, in all of the seven emirates, uh, there is no unifying uh, law that force all the emirates to follow uh, one economic policy in their private sector. Um, in my chapter, I've, um, uh, I have one main point to argue, uh, uh, and is that uh, political uh, business elites and social uh, social elites and political elites, they all. Uh, link their interests together in order to manage the state. Prior to the discovery, discovery of oil, uh, uh, business elites were, uh, had more power than the, uh, the political elite. This is due to the fact that they had access uh, to the uh, private sector revenues more than the political elite. Political elites, uh, before the oil, uh, they actually had uh, only one role to do is to protect the uh, business elites in the private sector. Different uh, merchant families uh, prior to the, uh, 1971 um, were able uh, to link their interest uh, with, the, with the political elites. And after the discovery of all those families who managed to uh, remain social, uh, socially and economically close to the, uh, the political elite, uh, they've had the advantage of uh, building stronger relationship with the new state, with the new ruling families in, in the UAE. And therefore, um, uh, they were granted uh, more privileges over other uh, particular families within the UAE itself. Um, during the 1970s and 80s, those uh, merchant elites, such as uh, al or, or Swedish families <coughs> in the UAE, for those who have some ideas about the families in, in the UAE, um, they have been given uh, top, top government positions, and this allowed them to have access to the oil revenues, and, and therefore they started to build their um, uh, enterprises, their wealth, in the area during the early 1970s and, and, uh, and 80s. Um, 
the, the structure of the private sector in the OE uh, started to become clearer uh, by, uh, by early 1980s. Although, uh, in, uh, as, as we know here in Europe, uh, for example, that the private sector is very much dominant by the small and medium enterprises and, 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 and family business in, 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 in particular, in the UAE, the private sector in the UAE is divided into three main segments. Um, uh, there is the state-dominated companies, uh, small and medium enterprises, large family businesses. And the difference between this is the, how, the, how the, these companies are structured. The state-dominated companies are government uh, companies. They are funded by the government. They are the, uh, managed by the government. However, they have the characteristics of a small uh, um, uh, companies. Um, and therefore, uh, they try actually to play a role in the private sector, acting as a private, but the revenues goes to the particular ruling uh, families. Uh, small and medium enterprises um, uh, in the UAE uh, are not the same as the family businesses. Some would think that the uh, family uh, businesses are s similar to those uh, as um, small and medium enterprises. Uh, in the UAE and most of the Gulf states, the small and medium enterprises um, are run by uh, the expatriates uh, in, in general. They have the kafir system, the sponsorship uh, system, uh, which, for example, if we take a grocery, uh, the Emirati would uh, sponsor uh, Indian merchant, for example, uh, and he will charge him, uh, let's say, a thousand pound a year uh, to run his business. Although the business is, does not belong to the uh, to the Emirati, but belongs to the uh, uh, to this uh, expatriate uh, merchant. However, it's just uh, registered under uh, the, the Emirati um, uh, or the, uh, or the, the UAE national. Uh, in contrast to the small and medium enterprise, there are the family businesses, and those are the merchant families that existed pre and post-1971. Uh, the family businesses are those who actually managed to have a very good relation with the political elites uh, uh, and managed to grow their wealth uh, very much uh, based on uh, advantages and privileges that they used to get from the uh, from the government. So the relationship between all those sectors um, uh, lie in, in the fact that uh, most of the top families, most of the merchant families that they managed to build their wealth uh, through their socially uh, related with the, with the ruling families uh, or th through their historical relation with the ruling families prior to the discovery of oil in 19, uh, 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 1971. As a case study of, of this and how business elites managed to link their wide-ranging interest uh, with the political elite, there is Al-Fahim family. Uh, uh, Al-Fahim family is one of the leading uh, merchant, uh, uh, one of the leading merchant families in the UAE, uh, and Al-Fahim are uh, is of actually of uh, Persian origins, uh, although they uh, uh, they, st they still claim that they, they don't have any uh, Persian uh, background. In the early 1950s, uh, uh, this family moved from, from the southern part of Iran to the UAE. Uh, and because of their experience in the trade, uh, the ruling families at that time managed to uh, actually accept them uh, into the private sector because they realized that they generate a lot of uh, income from, uh, uh, based, based on their experience. And therefore, they were uh, preferred over other local Arab uh, merchant families. Uh, and this relationship uh, got stronger until early 1970s, and once the, once the UAE were established, uh, Al-Fahim family were preferred over many other, uh, even uh, Arab families existed in that area in that time. 
and therefore uh, he started to build his wealth uh, uh, by uh, uh, getting uh, unlimited support from the government in the 1970s and 80s and now uh, the, the, the Al-Fayim family um, they dominate uh, 20 or 30 percent of the private sector because of their uh, uh, large uh, capital Thank you very much plenty of uh, food for thought there um, just to reiterate, the, uh, the book is available, and what I didn't tell you at the start is that, of course, you can get it at a specially discounted rate of £15 as well as £25, just representing business interests here. Um, we have been very concise, so we have plenty of time for questions. Um, please give your um, name and uh, affiliation. I've got a couple, but actually I see Mr David Butter putting his hand up there now. Have a mic. Uh, thank you, John. Yeah, I'd like to go back um, to uh, Stefan's opening remarks and maybe add in a factor in Egypt um, to how the corporate sector has evolved before and after the revolution and the other very important actor that's been involved in all of this, which is the military. Um, the military was hostile and threatened by the development of a vibrant corporate sector. Um, it, uh, it explicitly opposed the, many of the policies associated with the NDP or the crony capitalists, not because they were crony capitalists, but because they were encroaching on the privileges and the long-term sustainability of the rent-seeking behavior of the military. And of course, since the revolution, um, the military was in charge for that sort of first year and a half and uh, took some very fateful decisions in terms of where the economy has been left afterwards. Um, you know, the corporate sector in Egypt is quite a lot deeper, I think, than the cronies or the names at the top. And even if you look at uh, characters like uh, Ahmed, as his his business or the business he set up still exists, it may end up being broken up, but it still operates. Um, there is a fairly strong and deep corporate sector still there in Egypt, um, and. Following on from the military, of course, then you've had the, the politics of the Muslim Brotherhood and their failure to, uh, to implement economic policies that can stop the rot, if you like. So the corporate sector's survival through these last two years actually, I think, has been quite remarkable. The real tragedy, I think, is that they're reaching the point now with the, uh, the really dangerous state that the economy is in that they too may be swept away not by a revolution, but by the incompetence um, of the people who've been in charge for the last two years. Anyone? Stefan? Yeah, I, th I think those are very, very opposite remarks, and I, I should say that when I talk about someone like Ahmed Is, I don't, I don't mean to say that this is a typical member of the, of the business elite, and obviously uh, the, the cronies, although they were very large and significant, they, they, they weren't representative of the private sector at large, but to the extent that business played a role in politics, I think it was the cronies who played a role, and those guys were cut off at their knees pretty quickly. And, and the business sector has not, uh, the, the remaining actors have not managed to get their act together as a political lobbying group since, I believe. Mean. Uh, and um, an interesting phenomenon recently in Egypt is that they're trying to quite actively invite back some of the people who early on were fingered for supposed or real crony capitalist transactions. I mean, no, no one was asked deeply was as deeply in bed with the old regime or part of the old regime as Ahmed is, but some of the other people who uh, were fingered for supposedly dodgy privatizations and things like that are now, I think, being invited back by the regime because they're, uh, they're running out of 
capitalists to, to essentially work with and, and to, to uh, make the economy grow again. I, th I think I, I actually look quite a lot at Tunisia and I am regularly stunned to see which members of the Tunisian business elite, including members of the Ben Ali family, have actually survived and uh, have made alliances and been able to, to cope. One, one question before we just go back into the audience that follows on from this is I think there's a, a, a point that Khalid made that the period before oil and where the ruling families actually gained their momentum and came to represent the state with the rents, the jobs that, that followed up, that the merchant families had a, a much greater role, even if you look at Syria, um, the question of Aleppo, um, the, those, those, those businesses, business families, and right away across the region, and, and possibly some, some comments from over the longer period, perhaps looking at 34, 40 years, the way that the business elites in each country actually diminished, that crony capitalism was about the state um, concentrating itself in certain personal hands and the business that went with that. And leading on from that, perhaps, possibly just an appreciation of whether, with the, particularly in the states where there's been political transition, do you see any signs of the business communities remaking themselves? I mean, in Tunisia, for example, with Utica, the employers' federation under Widad Bouchamawi, we've seen, you know, at least an attempt to, to remake it. So, so possibly an appreciation of the role the state, the business families, did they change? Was power more concentrated to the, to the detrimental effect for the economy in the last decade or so? Um, just, just to add a point... Um, that tribal alliance before the discovery of oil was really important. Uh, and just want to give an example of, uh, uh, I don't want to mention the name of the tribe uh, for different reasons, um, that uh, they allied with the, the ruling family of Abu Dhabi um, uh, for one condition, that as soon as they establish the state, they, have, they give this particular tribe an oil field. Uh, and this, uh, this, this tribe uh, built all its wealth because of the tribal alliance. They, they, they asked Sheikh Zayed in particular, said, we will support you if you give us uh, a chunk of this wealth that will, you will generate from the oil. And, uh, don't ask me about uh, the name of the tribe because I will not say it. <laughs> um, yet I was going to make a small follow-up remark on the, the pre-oil and post-oil sector, which I think is very important to understand the uh, also somewhat precarious political position of business in the in the Gulf and that is that uh, the merchants are very large, very rich, very well connected uh, they still think of themselves as highly placed social elites but in many regards I don't think they fulfill a crucial political function anymore for the GCC regimes the way they used to and I think that the more uh, there's uh, the development of uh, a middle class and a middle class identity uh, and uh, the more that people realize that actually business pays neither taxes nor generates employment for nationals it mostly generates employment for foreigners it actually doesn't have any organic uh, contribution to make in the social contract and I think that's become very visible in the GCC countries that have a relatively higher level of democratic participation if you look at Kuwait it's the one country that's semi-democratic business has been completely marginalized in electoral politics it's fairly marginal in uh, other cases where you have reasonably free elections. And it's very different from what 
things were like in the 1960s when parliamentary politics or the 1950s when parliamentary politics was driven by business, mm -hmm. when the demand for constitutional rule actually came from business. So I think there's a secular trend of business being marginalized in popular politics and of people uh, adopting increasingly populist and at the same time rational positions about business, that those guys don't do much for us, they don't pay taxes, they don't generate employment, they get a lot of money from government and, and uh, in many cases stashed away in private bank accounts in Geneva. And I think you have that sense of populism even in the tame uh, controlled press in places like Qatar or Saudi Arabia now much more than you had it 10 years ago. So I think there's a, a structural uh, threat to GCC business as long as it doesn't organically contribute to uh, the national social contract. Perhaps we can um, discuss tax in a little bit. There's a gentleman over there who's been waiting patiently and then I have seen your... Uh, sorry, I should, I should uh, say one thing. We've got another author of one of the chapters, Tina Zintel here, wrote a very good chapter about Syria. So if there are any Syria-specific questions, then we'll, we'll uh, launch them your way, Tina. Please. Uh, is it on? Yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Reynolds Linders from uh, King's College. Um, I, I have three quick remarks and one question. Um, my two quick remarks are in response to Dr. Herzog's uh, presentation. Um, I, I would like to challenge you a little bit about the, your argument that, that people like Mahlouf <coughs> have been sacrificed rather readily. And in fact, we don't know whether he was sacrificed. Mm. There was a press conference. There was a lot of drama and, and um, words about him retreating and so on. But we, we have no idea about his, uh, his whereabouts even or, mm. and what he's doing and what happened to his capital. So I think that, that, that conclusion is a bit premature. More fundamentally, um, I felt a bit uncomfortable about your, your maybe maybe I misunderstood, but you rather dismissive um, comments about the literature on authoritarian resilience and the political economy of authoritarian resilience in the region. As, as a matter of fact, if we look at the map today in the Middle East, there are more authoritarian regimes than there are uh, re, uh, countries with some promise of democratization. Uh, and on top of that, in, even in those countries, uh, including Egypt, it's, it's all but sure that uh, where, which direction mm. we are going. So I would argue the literature on authoritarian resilience and the political economy has become even more relevant than before. Then, uh, uh, just a quick remark on uh, Professor Luciani's uh, presentation. I, I was wondering, you, you seem to attribute rather developmentalists' intentions and motivations to policymakers, uh, particularly in, in Egypt. Um, I, I would question that, and, and perhaps we could think of um, uh, very different motivations, like uh, reconfiguring rent-seeking practices uh, being the aim of economic reforms rather than generating um, employment and, and addressing social problems and so on. Finally, finally my, my question, and that maybe refers also particularly to the gentleman who wrote on Syria, um, what has been the role of business in the uprisings, and particularly now in the insurgency in, in Syria, and perhaps related to that, do SMEs do they do they do they feature in your uh, in your definition of of business? Thank you. Okay, plenty to uh, get into, and then we'll come over for the next questions. I've seen those there. Who would like to to start? Luciano, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, 
Well, you're right. I, I have a, an assumption which is not even hidden, it's very uh, explicit, that uh, uh, in order to consolidate uh, the revolution uh, and be successful, uh, democratic transition uh, needs to, to satisfy the expectations uh, of uh, the vast majority of the people that uh, actually made uh, the revolution, okay? Mm. Uh, business did not make the revolution. You didn't see the businessmen uh, in Tahrir Square. It was not that, uh, and that is not expected. So uh, there is a push from uh, uh, below, and this uh, needs to, to have uh, a correct answer. Uh, now, it is perfectly possible that the democratic uh, uh, transition will fail. And in that respect, you are right. We still uh, count uh, the numbers and we see a majority of authoritarian uh, governments. Uh, this is, it would not be the first time. It would not be the first time that the region has known a, 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 an emergence, uh, an outbreak of uh, democratic intention or, or uh, wish for, for greater participation and it fades. We had the same uh, in, in uh, the late 80s, early 90s and it failed uh, when uh, the electoral process in Algeria was stopped uh, and it led to the civil war, 200,000 dead uh, and that was something that discouraged uh, uh, any such attempt for a, for a long time actually in Algeria to this moment. You know, uh, Algeria is one of the countries that is not experiencing a, a popular uprising. Uh, so, uh, yes, we may be pessimistic and assume that it will uh, not work out and, uh, and uh, the, the, the well-known arguments in favor of uh, authoritarianism, uh, the, 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 the persistence of authoritarianism in the region will, in the end, uh, prove uh, right once again. Uh, that's quite possible. Um, I think it's a very good point about Rami Mahlouz that we don't know whether he might have kept his assets, but I think it's still significant that he was publicly, symbolically sacrificed pretty early on in the process, and it was him rather than, say, a hated member of the security establishment. And is definitely was sacrificed. Uh, and and that, that happened before Mubarak uh, left the country. Um, now, regarding authoritarian resilience, I guess it, it depends on what you're speaking about. Uh, if uh, you, you think that there are uh, about six authoritarian republics that would probably con constitute uh, the, the, the main universe of cases to which uh, the, a lot of the theories or a lot of the arguments about the, the newly in authoritarianism were applied. Four of them have had uh, regime changes. One of, one of them is probably going to have a regime change. The, the last one, uh, Algeria, you know, uh, hasn't been challenged because, probably all kind of, because of probably all kinds of idiosyncratic factors related to its own history of political violence. Um, so uh, I don't think that challenging that literature means that you predict like a smooth democratic transition to like a Switzerland on the Nile. Uh, I think uh, the challenge is to, to the, the basic argument that those authoritarian regimes can keep themselves in power. They might be replaced by something else that's you know, an illiberal democracy, semi-democracy, uh, an authoritarian uh, Islamist state. We don't know. But certainly all those arguments that were made about those regimes being so lean, um, mean, and pro-capitalist having refashioned their support coalition around a, 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 a durable, <coughs> crony capitalist network, having very efficiently shed their support networks among 
other uh, segments of society, I, th I think that has, really hasn't borne out. I think they've, they've lost their broader social constituency that they built up originally in a period of authoritarian populist state building that was socialist tinged in terms of its development ideology. In the 1950s and 1960s, they've progressively marginalized those constituencies and they replaced them to some extent by crony capitalist networks that just uh, proved to be of pretty much no use once there was a significant popular challenge. And I, uh, I think I would, I would stick to that and that is something that's been witnessed in the majority of the republics. The monarchies are a different story, but the monarchies never changed that much. They never reformed themselves that much in a new image. They were always pretty honest about who they were, which is uh, family rules, uh, highly unequal uh, patronage-based uh, societies. So they always were what the republics turned themselves into, but they were always uh, a lot more straightforward about that, and that, I think that's, that's helped them. I'm, I'm not actually sure, but it's not for me to speak theoretically, whether I actually quite agree with that, actually, no, because I, I, I think in the republics, you very much got the feeling over the last decade that, and possibly through the personal links that they had, that if you look at people like Saif al-Islam, um, perhaps even the Mahloufs, but certainly Bashar and the family, that they were following in the footsteps of some of the mon uh, modernizing monarchies. I mean, I wonder, if you look at Mohammed bin Zayed, you look at the way some of the Mahtoums, um behaved and whatever, how different, and I, I wondered the extent to which they actually set up a model that was being followed, but it, that in, 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 in the Republican case was found to be unsustainable, partly because you were concentrating power to a degree that you could possibly do in monarchies, yeah. but that you couldn't do in a republic. And you also saw it in others. Look at Morocco, Mohammed uh, VI, the way he got, get, gathered money, and you had corporates... Um, various people. I don't know. It's an, it's I, an interesting point. I, I, I think we're exactly on the same sheet that the, the republics tried to turn themselves into monarchies but failed in the process. It's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Who would have thought it for those older ones amongst us that mm -hmm. the republics would have followed the monarchies rather than vice versa? You were waiting from the beginning to ask a question and then the gentleman in the middle. I think there was a question about Syria. Oh, there was a question about Syria. Sorry, do we want... Do excuse me. Okay, um, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch the exact question because I can't see you properly, so if you could um, repeat that, please. My main question was about the role of, um, of business groups, however defined, in, in helping to finance the insurgency or, or at an earlier stage the uprising um, or, or taking part in it. Um, and perhaps related to that, do you, do you also include small and medium-sized enterprises within your, your conceptualization of business? I think um, that's also the confusion we had before about the literature of authoritarian upgrading because I think the whole point is to look at different perspectives and to open up the definitions, uh, the definition of business as well so that you can... Um, include small and medium enterprises as well, um, but of course, in the political process, it's usually they are usually marginalised, as we uh, heard before. So, um, I would say also in terms of the uprising, um, it's very fragmented. So, different um, groups of the um, of business people belong to different camps, and they don't play their cards openly because it's much too. Um, 
dangerous for that, of course. So, um, I think um, there is much more financing going on, um, not only business people based in Damascus and Aleppo, um, even former crony capitalists, um, but also people living outside, diaspora businessmen who uh, covertly finance, um, more or less covertly finance um, the uprising, but it's not openly played, so I couldn't give you numbers, for example. Um, as for the um, sacrificing um, Rami Mahlouf, uh, what we said before, I think um, what is quite, um, they sacrificed him, but not quickly enough. So it was uh, a public sacrifice, but uh, it was uh, ineffective in that uh, it didn't come after the first protests in Dara, but much later. So uh, I just wanted to point towards that point as well. Thank you. Thank you. Lady, just Thank you. Uh, my question is about, there was a lot of talk about the established business elite, but um, also a lot of focus of the Arab uprisings has been the fact that um, about 60% of the Middle Eastern population is under the age of 30. So what about the rise of entrepreneurship in the Arab world, and how will that affect the business structures currently? Um, looking specifically at Egypt, are, are, are the social makeup of these people that are pursuing very entrepreneurial small businesses um, also of the same strata as these business elites? Uh, you have Sawiris, for example, you mentioned they've been failing politically, but they have historically had um, huge incubators, business plan competitions, and ways to encourage entrepreneurship. But have we seen this translate into any action from the youth and those entrepreneurs in terms of a policy framework? And what are the challenges facing the entrepreneurs in the region? Thanks. Who would like to... Uh... Well, uh, there has been, uh, uh, even uh, in the past, I mean, for, for, for years and decades, uh, a sort of lip service paid, being paid to the need uh, in Tunisia for the modernization of industry in Egypt for, uh, uh, again, you know, nurturing small uh, entrepreneurs or youth entrepreneurs. Um, I think it's essential to, to uh, understand the fact that sometimes policies are articulated and, and even meant, but uh, when uh, uh, you get to the implementation, uh, they are not uh, efficiently or, or effectively implemented. And so, <laughs> although the government understands that this is what... Uh, they should do and, and, and intends to do it, nevertheless uh, does it uh, in a botched way and doesn't get the outcome. Uh, this goes back to my point about the fact that they chose the wrong cronies. I mean, they chose... Uh, <laughs> you know, in the end, uh, uh, there, there is uh, a need to, to, to properly implement a policy. So even if you have uh, a good policy, and in many ways we cannot say that the policies were uh, badly defined. Uh, so some people say, you know, what's the difference between Bashar and, and, uh, and uh, Mohammed uh, bin Zayed? Uh, Bashar uh, may have said and may have intended to do certain things, but he chose the wrong people. He was not capable of implementing uh, his, his own policy with the kind of 
discipline and, and, uh, and detachment, if you wish, from, from individuals, specific individuals, he implemented it on the basis of personal loyalty. And, and people who were personally loyal to him were not good businessmen. And, uh, and so uh, in, in other parts of, uh, of the region, uh, not, I wouldn't say that Abu Dhabi is the most uh, illustrious or splendid uh, uh, example of it, but you know, they have been able to choose better cronies and, and uh, allow you know, some, some characters who clearly were not effective to simply fade out of the picture. We have many who were prominent in, in Saudi Arabia in the 1970s have disappeared. They have disappeared. And new uh, people have been co-opted into the system. So uh, a crony capitalist uh, uh, policy uh, can be very effective. And we have multiple examples. Uh, but it has to be implemented uh, in, in, uh, in a good fashion. And I, I cannot find any other explanation uh, for the failure of, of uh, the republics of the past regimes uh, um, to, to deliver any, uh, any growth. I think perhaps the panel could give us a view from, from each of the countries they specialize in, for example, on the banking sector, because it seems to me you were talking about grassroots entrepreneurs, but in how many of the countries across the region, if you're someone who doesn't come from that elite, if you don't have those relationships, it's absolutely impossible to go and get the sort of seed capital that you'd need even to have the smallest business. Um, and, and are there, is there anywhere where that's actually happening, where someone can come off the street, go to the Chamber of Commerce, where you need all those registrations, or go to a bank and even borrow a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that, that is one uh, component. I don't say that it's not important, but uh, uh, what is missing is a vision about uh, the future uh, of the country and, and what it needs to develop in order to be competitive and, and prosperous. Uh, if you compare Tunisia or Egypt uh, with Dubai, okay, uh, which is much more interesting, cheap, <laughs> much more interesting than Abu Dhabi, okay, uh, these countries understood that they had uh, potential for tourism and they established and promoted tourism. Fine. Uh, to some extent, they understood that they might have had a potential for outsourcing of certain industries and, and attempted to do that, textiles and so on. But they didn't have a vision about the future, uh, how, how to build uh, this country. And that's what distinguishes them from uh, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, or, or, or Dubai. Uh, so uh, if the state in a crony capitalist system needs to provide guidance and, and, and uh, you know, make sure that people go in the direction that is useful for, for the future of the state. And in Egypt, uh, the, the guidance that was given was uh, catastrophic. You know, they tried to develop the new valley. Uh, they, they tried to, to develop, uh, uh, they, they, they pushed people to invest into the wrong things, you know, wrong projects, okay? And, and uh, it's not sufficient to encourage a capitalist, uh, a crony capitalist uh, class. You also need to uh, give <laughs> an opportunity to actually succeed. 
and they didn't get that. Hmm. Anyone more? Yeah, about your, uh, your question <coughs> about the possibility for young businessmen to emerge. Uh, it's absolutely, I mean, in the Gulf, it's absolutely possible. Uh, but um, the thing is that I agree with Stefan when he says that there has been a, uh, a move, uh, I mean, a withdrawal, uh, a forced withdrawal of the merchant elite from the decision, uh, the decision making process. Compared to the 60s, it's obvious in all countries. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, I, I mean, economically also, this went with uh, an economic withdrawal also. The fact is that that doesn't mean that there is space for new actors at, to become uh, very, very strong. This space has to, I mean, the, the space which was, le which was left by this merchant who withdrew uh, was taken usually by either uh, members of the ruling families who entered business, and it's very clear in Bahrain, for instance, uh, or uh, by uh, nouveau riches or people who emerged <coughs> because they were supported by uh, m by members of the ruling families, and it's also very clear. Uh, for instance, you had in Bahrain at the end of the 90s, you had people who emerged from basically nothing, uh, who had good connections and who could uh, build huge empires, uh, economic empires, but who have not been able to, to sustain it because uh, it was not based on something solid. So, I mean, this means that for young businessmen, there are possibilities, there are opportunities, uh, and you can uh, create businesses in the Gulf. The thing is that, uh, as everywhere, you have to uh, have your networks. You have to, uh, to create your networks or to rely on networks. And uh, uh, yeah, on, on the entrepreneurs, uh, I think a lot of the things that you need to succeed as a young entrepreneur probably have become a lot worse the last two years. Uh, in, in certainly the, the countries that have witnessed significant unrest, I think I think there's a lot of upward uh, potential in the long run. But if you think in terms of you know, regulatory stability, uh, security of property rights, uh, availability of credit, all, all those things have probably become worse. There's quite a bit of enthusiasm about what the cronies are out of the way and how you know, the, the real entrepreneurs can fill that space. But the general institutional environment, and that's not, that's not specific to the Middle East, that's typical of political transitions in lower to mid-income countries all over the world, in the Philippines or the Indonesia. Things first get quite a bit worse before they potentially get better. The question is whether they will get better at all the way they did eventually in Indonesia. Um, so um, in terms of you know, bureaucratic environment, financing, judicial environment, uh, availability of infrastructure, I don't, I don't think things look particularly hunky-dory for young entrepreneurs. Um, there's, uh, the financing constraints are very important in the poor countries. Uh, you, you get too little money in Egypt and Abu Dhabi. If you're a young entrepreneur, they give you too much and they never ask what you do with it. So it's the two opposite extremes that are both not very productive. Thank you. Um, There's a gentleman who's been waiting very patiently, and then I've seen a gentleman there and a lady over there. But please. Yusuf yeah. uh, student at uh, King's College. Thanks, our great speakers. I mean, this will really will, will, will understand talk. Uh, I would like to mention that it's very important to differentiate between GCC country and the other Arab elite. I mean, okay, the business, 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 business uh, state business relations 
It seems to me it's unavoidable in the GCC country because all those monarchies start 40 to 50 years back, where there is a lack of experience, lack of education. So, and, and the government, because they get the, 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 the oil, they have, they've been becoming the dominant. And that's normal. If you have access to the milk, you will be fat. And that's why business, I mean, family business becoming larger because they are was closer to the politic, uh, political elite. So, uh, I mean, and there is a lot of talk about this is like a Dutch disease. This is unavoidable. I mean, private sector is not being planned to be weak. I mean, the, I'm, I'm not defining the, 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 the regime here, but I mean, I mean, there is a strong economic sector, which is oil and gas. That's why the rest of economy or the rest of the private sector is, is, is weak. I mean, that's not planned by, by the regimes, but because the lack of vision, as they said, or the lack of trans, uh, I mean, clear, clear roadmap for the private sector to grow and way to promote the uh, entrepreneur or, or, or the way to, to, to utilize the, 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 the oil, 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 oil revenue in a way to sustain the development for those, those monarchy. All, all regimes, I mean, we are confident they are looking for betterment for their citizen and to, to improve their standard of living. But what is, I mean, sometimes the, the argument is understand, uh, misunderstood that the, the regime is planned to keep the private sector as weak, which is not true. That is happening because this is how it comes. Thank you. Thank you. If you have access to the milk, you will get fat. Who, um, who would like to comment? Can we perhaps take more uh, questions? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's. There's a gentleman just there who's been waiting once, but I we prefer to go. In, in a, in a single I like to go one at a time. I prefer. Yeah. Uh, my name's Dave Nasnai. Uh, uh, you've spoken about how there's been a, a withdrawal and, in fact, even a discrediting of the the, the business elites in, in various of these states and these countries. Um, if that's the case. And also, certainly in, in, in Egypt, there's been a discrediting of the whole neoliberal uh, economic uh, project, which is also being discredited in Europe now as well. If that's the case, is there not a constituency at all coalescing in any of these countries for the what you might call the more old-fashioned, traditional, uh, uh, state-run or uh, socialist or communist? Is, is there not any kind of popular... Um, movement in that direction in any of these countries. It's a, as we are coming towards the end, we'll take one more question just over, over there and then we'll see if we've got time for some more. Just seeing some more hands come up. Uh, thank you. I'd like to refer to the uh, question of the vision in the Gulf that, that seems to not be manifest elsewhere. Um, just to mention that uh, before the Burj Al Arab was built, Booz Allen did a feasibility study for Sheikh Maktoum on, on the Burj and they said it would never break even and he said build it anyway. So the issue of sort of prestige bills and how that affects vision is something that you might speak to. Uh, but of most interest to me is the question of free economic zones. Uh, you mentioned Dubai in the 1950s. Um, initially, Dubai was interesting because of flying boats. So the British used flying boats from Dubai to Australia. But then, of course, we didn't need them between the 50s and the 70s, and the oil was found in the 70s. In the interim period, Dubai established a free economic zone and was rather creative in doing that. If you look to what's happening in Syria at the minute, it seems that there are creative Syrians who are creating free economic zones in the ambiguous or uh, vulnerable areas or the peripheral areas of the state in the midst of civil war. So could you speak to the, the phenomenon of free economic zones and the capacity of the little people 
the, um, the entrepreneurs on the ground to be able to be creative in terms of free zoning uh, and economic creativity from the places that we tend not to look. Thanks. Okay, thank you. So we had um, another question on the state and the, um, the values of the governments in the Gulf. We had the question of communism and populism, certainly strong issue, and free zones and the spaces in between that people can fill. Yeah, um, uh, in response to the first uh, comment or question from uh, uh, Yusuf, um, the state, uh, um, since its early formation, did not mean to create a weak uh, private sector. Uh, but uh, if we understand the history of how these states were formed and the relationship between business elites and political elites in, uh, in the 1960s, we realize that uh, uh, political elite, uh, business elites were stronger than the political elite. And they realized that uh, their existence and survival uh, is based on those business elites. And therefore, uh, uh, prior to the formation of these states, uh, they wanted to make, well, they wanted to make a, 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 uh, one segment of the private sector weak, that uh, not to allow a foreign uh, merchant or a foreign uh, uh, investor to compete with those who actually historically uh, were uh, in, in support of the ruling families. And therefore, nowadays, we see in the UAE, for example, most of the uh, businesses and, 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 and family businesses uh, are in, in support of the, of the government. Uh, the Arab, you see the implication of Arab Spring, for example, in most of the Gulf states, that more, all of the business elites are, were loyal and supportive of the government. Uh, because business elites in the Gulf actually they are not interested in politics. What they are interested in, they want to protect their business, and that's what they have been doing in the past um, uh, past years. Um, and the question uh, in relation to the um, uh, the uh, creation of a new uh, or role of entrepreneurship uh, of local ones in, in Dubai, for example, um, Dubai actually since the uh, 40s and 50s when they started to to open up. Um, uh, to give it a, a chances for the uh, for merchants, um, they had one agreement with the, with the uh, with the Al Maktoum at that time is that that not to intervene in the politics of the state, and they have actually accepted that they just want to come and run a business uh, and create an active uh, uh, economy. This is due to the fact that there were very few exper un, uh, uh, experienced uh, Arab merchants at that time, so they had to ask, they had to encourage all uh, foreign investors to come, uh, in particular from, uh, from Iran, to come and create. And this became uh, a tradition that most of these businesses and those the uh, creation of new ideas or, uh, or the ideas of the different buildings uh, did not actually, uh, was not initiated by the rulers, by, by those uh, foreign uh, uh, merchants. If I may uh, quickly uh, add something, I think the, the governments would uh, dearly uh, like to, to uh, follow a more uh, uh, interventionist uh, uh, policy, especially with respect to the social uh, services, the key social services, education, health, and so on, housing. Uh, at the moment, they are uh, strictly penniless, so they don't know uh, how to uh, go about it, but certainly there is uh, underlying a, a rejection of the neoliberal pure and simple uh, model. Uh, the free zones are part of, should be seen as part of a package of policies uh, which um, 
which has been uh, very effective in the case of, of Dubai, uh, which includes promotion of tourism, which includes first and foremost promotion of the place as a transport and logistic hub. And then, uh, you know, th these different uh, pieces of the puzzle have been uh, supporting each other in uh, uh, the key uh, merit of, of uh, the al-Maktoum, uh, Sheikh Rashid first and Mohammed now, uh, has been to, to have the vision and pushing the, 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 the private sector and opening opportunities for the private sector, which the private sector took or did not take in some cases. Uh, we, have, uh, we have stories about uh, entrepreneurs who refused to take uh, the, the, the uh, opportunities that were given to them and then and later <laughs> complained or, or uh, were sorry that they didn't take uh, the opportunity. So the state has a, a role in, in giving a direction. That is very clear. Now, when I think of Syria and of the fact that Syria uh, has been basically occupying Lebanon for a long period of time. Uh, has had an opportunity to, pay, to play a, a very important role in the regional economy uh, with respect to Iraq, with respect to Jordan. Where is this role? What did they do? Uh, did they uh, have a concept of... Uh, uh, exploiting or, or utilizing the political position in order to come up with a development uh, scheme for, for the region that would be centered around Syria that would uh, it, it's not there it's just not there it has been dominated by purely uh, security or tactical preoccupations okay uh, who's in power in, in, in Baghdad uh, who, uh, Hariri is, is, is not my friend and so on and so forth and that is, is not it's not possible to prosper economically if you are obsessed by uh, purely tactical in maneuvering uh, so the Assads have been masters at, uh, at maneuvering and always coming on top in the regional uh, conundrum but in terms of generating uh, economic development, uh, they have been a total disaster. It's an interesting question about uh, the return of populism. Clearly, I mean, there's a Nasserist constituency, and Hamdin Salahi got, I don't know how many, 20% or, or more in the first round of the presidential election. But as Jacqueline points out, Nasserism is very expensive. It's very expensive. It's based not only on delivering infrastructure, education, health services, cheap utilities, subsidized bread, and what have you that can't be financed anymore, but distribution in not only the Nasserist populist mold, but also the Algerian, the Syrian, to some extent the Yemeni mold is built on surplus public sector employment. Just give people unneeded jobs in the bureaucracy, and that's extremely costly. And it, it has failed. You know, Nasserism has failed. People have, some people have just forgotten about it. Nazism failed in the 60s, neoliberalism failed recently, but both haven't worked out. So I don't think there's a viable return to kind of Nazarist-style populism. There are smart ways of being populist that have been tried in Latin America and places like Brazil, for example, but somehow I don't see uh, the, the kind of policies that were pursued there, also in Mexico, I don't see those percolating through into the economic policy debate in, in the Arab world, which, which is a shame. I think this is a real problem. Viewed from North Africa, your, your point on populism is absolutely correct, it's going to be extraordinarily hard to put in place 
imaginative structures that create employment, at least in the, in the, in the short to medium term, in countries. Because, as you say, if you look at voting intentions on Nasserism in, in Egypt, perhaps you've got 20%, but if you actually engage people in conversation to discuss how do you create employment, um, you suddenly have a much higher proportion. Tunisia as well, they'll be out on the streets tomorrow um, demonstrating about this. And, and, and again, it comes back, I think, to the conception of the state and how people within the revolutionary context, at least outside the Gulf in North Africa, actually see the state and see the state as providing and opening up the situation. Um, we've got, Just according one to one point on yes, that, uh, I think it was, what is interesting is that uh, many uh, uprisings were linked to a demand for more state. Uh, better education, better health system, better infrastructures in the periphery. <coughs> and you can see that in many countries, the, the unrest or the problems started from the periphery. In Oman, it's very clear in Sohar. In Egypt, with Mahalla, uh, Mahalla al-Kubra uh, in, in 2007-2008. In Tunisia, in the periphery also. Um, the thing is that, I, interestingly, the, uh, the, the actors who could have uh, used that have not managed to present a, a real program. You, you mentioned Hamdin Sabahi. Uh, when you listen at him uh, economically, I mean, he has no economic program. Even a socialist program, or he has no economic program. Uh, if you mention, uh, if you look at Bahrain, for instance, the Wa'ad Party, which was the secular uh, in the opposition, very active in the Lulu roundabout, uh, they have a history of being. Uh, uh, Maoist and uh, Marxist, I mean Maoist mainly. The thing is that they have, they are, they have a constituency in the in the country. At the moment, they are uh, considered as progressist and uh, secular and so. But they have no economic alternative. Uh, they, they they have not been able to create a, an economic program, and that's uh, that's according to me one of the reasons why. Uh, the many cons many people, many young people, have been disillusioned by the, the revolutions because they considered that they had a demand for secular, uh, progressist, um, interventionist, maybe or more justice, more uh, equality, and so. And they have been stolen. I mean, they considered that the, st the revolution was stolen because nothing has been implemented. Also, because there, there has been nobody to implement a program or to, to propose a real program. Thank you. I think we have got more people want to ask some questions, but I know we do have to wrap up absolutely on the, um, on the, on the stroke, stroke of eight. So what I thought perhaps to conclude, would, would anyone or four of you like to, to, to make some concluding remarks perhaps to wrap up what we've heard? Who, who would like to start? Good well, morning, particularly to say I've, I, I just learned something here that Ward is, is Maoist. Yeah. Um, but they were, they were. I mean, in the 70s, they were Maoists. Yeah. So was the Chinese Communist Party, of course. Yeah. So. Anyway. No, I think we... I don't think it's a word. That's it. There is a... There is, okay, there one. are more questions. Take, let's, yeah, take let's take more. Take, more. take two more. I've got a lady there who's been waiting and a man up at the top. So. Come on. Can we have, let's have the lady there. She's been mm -hmm. waiting for some time, and then very go ahead. Give the, give the 
Say a lot of Nahda, uh, part, uh, a lot of Nahda politicians used to say that it's because of the deep state uh, that a lot of problems are happening right now. Now, with regards to the crony capitalism that you've said in Tunisia being present, how plausible is that thesis? On the international oil companies, a quick answer. I don't think this will make uh, much difference for the international oil companies. Uh, uh, I don't see uh, the new uh, governments being uh, uh, really able to or, or willing to, to offer much better terms to, to, to the companies than, uh, than the past. Maybe uh, a bit of relaxation in Libya because uh, lately uh, the Gaddafi uh, government had really signed uh, uh, some some uh, contracts, or the companies signed contracts that were uh, almost punitive for for the companies, very very tough. And so maybe there there will be. But Libya has a tradition of pragmatism when it comes to that. So uh, Gaddafi would have done the same. I don't think that's uh, very influential. In the case of Egypt, uh, there is uh, need for uh, a substantial uh, rethinking of their uh, oil and gas policy because uh, fundamentally they are running uh, out of both, both oil and gas, so uh, there is need for, for a very fundamental uh, rethinking and uh, uh, I don't know whether uh, this will come out of the current government uh, or not. Uh, in, uh, uh, certainly, it might clean up uh, a little bit uh, a situation that was uh, previously quite, uh, you know, shady. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? On Shokri Belaid, that uh, the a gang of three that came in from Algeria has officially been put down for having done it, and that there's been links with the Islamists. But I think that in Tunisia there are profound deep state issues that still have to be resolved because the revolution isn't fully a, a revolution in terms of the turnover of political elites and whatever. So I think there is credence in that. So it's not for me to question, but we're on my home turf. Um, can we thank all four speakers very much who are very stimulating.